0: This edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care.
1: Hello, my name is Mark Boyko. I'm a first year integrated cardiothoracic surgery resident at the University of Southern California. I'm happy to be joined today by Dr. Ray Lee. Today we'll be discussing the exciting topic of the commando procedure. Dr. Lee is an attending faculty member and cardiothoracic surgeon at the University of Southern California with expertise in most facets of adult cardiothoracic surgery, including complex aortic and valvular procedures, as well as advanced heart failure therapies, including mechanical circulatory support and transplantation. Dr. Lee finished his general surgery residency training at the University of Southern California, after which he completed a fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery at Columbia University. Dr. Lee, uh, thank you very much for joining me this morning.
0: Thanks, Mark. It's my pleasure. So to start off our discussion today,
1: I was thinking that for some of our listeners, some of our more junior listeners who may not be that familiar or may not know exactly what a commando procedure is, if you could just give us a brief working definition of what the command procedure actually is and what it
0: entails. So the command procedure is used typically for um, infective endocarditis or severely calcified anterior mitral annulus and the aortic mitral curtain as well. And the goal ultimately in the infected case or infective endocarditis case, it's usually resulting in a uh, root abscess with infection uh, extending between the aortic and mitral valves extending through the aortic mitral curtain, typically plus or minus an abscess. In those situations, obviously the uh, tenants of infective endocarditis surgery, is to clear all signs of gross infection. And obviously, if the aero current is infected, um, removal of the intervalvular fibrous body will result in a commando procedure.
1: Awesome, thank you for that definition. Um, Before we dive into our case scenario, I also thought it might be interesting to ask you about the name of this procedure. So colloquially, we refer to it as the commando procedure, but it also has multiple other names. Uh, It's been referred to as the UFO procedure, or more formally, it's referred to as reconstruction of the aortomitral curtain, or Mm -hmm. the aortomitral continuity, or the intervalvular fibrous body. So to start off our conversation today, I just thought I'd ask you, um, what is your preferred name for this operation, and why do you think it is colloquially referred to as the commando procedure? And do you think that the name itself has any influence on the mindset of the surgeon uh, when they're preparing to
0: perform this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a very daunting surgery, although um, done correctly um, can have uh, excellent results. Um, Although, you know, there is a finite number of uh, complications you can have. It's just a very complex surgery. Um, So I had the pleasure um, during my training and my time in New York to train uh, under um, Dr. Michael Borger. Um, who um, himself uh, was under the tutelage of um, Dr. Tyrone David at uh, University of Toronto and also Frederick Moore um, at Leipzig, Germany. So interestingly, in both places, you know, he had referred to him as a UFO, that, which is um, uh, uh, what they refer to in Leipzig, Germany, and the commando, which is the way people refer to it at, um, uh, from what I understand, University of Toronto and the Cleveland Clinic, uh, from what my colleagues tell me. And the basis of, it's all the same surgery um, but the reasons of why, you know, for example, the UFO comes from, uh, from, uh, from what I understand from my friends is that some trainee had some point walked by the opera room, had seen what was happening. And it is rare. It doesn't happen that often. And it's fleeting like a UFO um, from a commando standpoint. It's like um it's also it, it's like looking at this operation which is uh, a lot of sewing it's complex uh 3d reconstruction in your mind of uh and it's uh there's parts in the operation where you can't see again unless you take the whole ser- take the whole commando down to fix something and so it's like going in toward you know like a commando procedure um i tend to call it commando procedure just because of where um where i trained in new york that's what we called it but i've heard it called all the above I think um, reconstruction of the aromitric current, reconstruction of the intervalvular fibrous body is technically what we are actually doing, but colloquially, commander and UFO is um, what my colleagues around the, the, the country refer to.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for that insight. So, uh, without further discussion, I'd like to dive into our case scenario here. So, Dr. Lee, you receive a call from the transfer center requesting transfer of a patient with endocarditis. And briefly, this is a 72-year-old gentleman with a history of a TAVR performed four years ago who presented to an outside hospital with four days of fevers, chills, and dyspnea on exertion. In the emergency room at the outside hospital, he was febrile to a temperature of 38.3 degrees Celsius. His heart rate was 89 and blood pressure was 138 over 76. His workup demonstrated a white count of 15,000 and his blood cultures were positive for gram-positive cocci. Uh, suggesting staff, um, staff. A transthoracic echo uh, demonstrated multiple mobile echo densities on the prosthetic tatter valve as well as an aortic root abscess. There was also a 1.2 centimeter echo density on the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve. There was moderate to severe mitral regurgitation as well as mild paravalvular aortic insufficiency. Injection fraction was estimated at 60% and an EKG demonstrated sinus rhythm with first degree AV block. The emergency room physician at the outside hospital began empiric IV antibiotics and then called the transfer center for higher level of care. So Dr. Lee, my first question to you is, uh, after accepting this patient for transfer to your institution, what additional preoperative workup or imaging would
0: be indicated in this patient's case? So I think usually in these situations, uh, well, any endocarditis case, I, the first things I try to find out is how urgent do we need to act on this patient? Um, what organism we're growing? Is this a very virulent organism? Do we have contraindications that will prevent us from going on cardiopulmonary bypass? And is this patient going to tolerate just open, complex open heart surgery? And I think that any time in this day and age as we are putting in more and more TAVR valves, um, we're finding that the surgery um, to explant them um, is uh, much more complex than just doing a straightforward redo um, It's It ends up causing a lot more inflammation. It sticks to things and um, it just makes a, the a repeat operation almost always requires a redo root of some sort. Um, I think that um, pan-scanning the patient to make sure we don't have um, mycotic aneurysms, distal emboli anywhere is always a, a good rule of thumb. Cath, only if um, obviously safe from the standpoint of having, uh, whether you're going to risk knock off any vegetations on the aortic side of the aortic valve. Um, and also if they've had a previous recent caths, um, if they don't have any stents, um, you know, uh, and they have some reasonable heart rate and you have a fast enough CT scanner, I think a CT coronary angiogram will give you the information that you need as well. Um, and then at that point, um, if I have a root abscess, I'm starting to have new uh, signs of heart block, large vegetations, root abscess. That patient needs to go to the operating room before there's a complication. And um, and it, 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 the way I was always taught was that um, waiting on these cases, only bad things will happen.
1: Okay, that's uh, actually a perfect segue, I think, into our next question, which is, how urgent is this operation? So is this something that needs to go emergently right away to the operating room? Or is it something that can wait, say, 24 hours, 48 hours? Um, and then in your mind, um, what patient factors, and I think you hinted at this already, but what patient factors would necessitate a more urgent operative intervention as opposed to being able to wait, like, let's say, 24, 48 hours to medically optimize the patient?
0: Well, I think that medical optimization is always important. And if the patient's not doing well, the most important thing is to figure out what that actual issue is. If the patient's under-resuscitated, they need a little inotrope, they need to get tuned up, that's one thing. But if the patient's not doing well hemodynamically because they have developed acute, um, for example, acute AI or uh, acute MR for whatever reason, whether it's a prosthetic valve or the native valve, we all understand that, you know, acute AI, MR are not tolerated very well. Your heart hasn't accommodated. And so in those situations, it prevents another issue, right? Because if you have acute AI, whether it's a prostate valve or native valve, you don't have a lot of rescue options, right? The balloon pump's not going to make things much better. Um, You can put them on ECMO, but then you're going to be flooding the lungs, and you can't put an impella in there to help you. So you're kind of stuck in a very rock-and-a-hard place. I think in those situations, if you're not doing well already, and you know you have no rescue therapy, that patient needs to go in the operating room much more urgently. Um, I think that in the situation, if you have... Um, If you have uh, acute MR as well, you can try to medically manage it, try to dry out the lungs a little bit. But if you can't medically optimize them quickly, again, you need to take the patient to the operating room because otherwise you're going to just be coming out on ECMO uh, for oxygenation, if not for hemodynamic support as well, because the lungs almost never get better um, after a pump run. And then I take a look at, well, if all those things are stable and the patient's hemodynamically stable, if they're starting to show signs of septic emboli. You know, Obviously, I want to make sure there's no mycotic aneurysms in the brain and make sure there's no large stroke or large hemorrhagic stroke in the brain that preclude me from, from a heparinization for a cardiopulmonary bypass. But um, uh, other things I also look for is heart block. So I think if you're starting to show signs of um, first degree heart block, second, third degree, think that what that always, always means, or say you're starting to show you um, bundle branch blocks. I think that's always a sign that we know from a surgical perspective where we're looking when we do a surgical aortic valve replacement, what's happening underneath. That area, you, you start to get those things um, because you are typically um, have extending abscess inflammation and you're gonna have a complete heart block in the middle of the night and you're gonna be putting a TVP. And again, you're still gonna end up doing the same thing. So I think the patient's hemodynamically stable, usually I, even with a large root abscess, with large vegetations, I usually will do them within 24 hours. Great. Um,
1: And uh, I also want to ask you So once the decision is made to proceed with surgery What extent of endocarditis Actually requires replacement of that intervalvular fibrous body So for example, hypothetically speaking Let's say you have infective endocarditis Of both the aortic and the mitral valves Mm -hmm. But there's no evidence that there's an abscess In the intervalvular fibrous body Can you get away with replacing both valves And leaving the intervalvular fibrous body alone
0: Absolutely Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, although, you know, it, it, I think that if you shouldn't be afraid to resect that area as long as you can confidently put it back together, but if they don't need it, um, it you know, there is a finite mortality and morbidity when you're doing a commando procedure. So I think that unless it's indicated, you should not be doing it for, for uh, uh, just because.
1: Great. Um, and, and how much of that decision is made? Preoperatively or intraoperatively, and what can yeah. you look for preoperatively to suggest or hint that the patient might require actually replacing that intervalvular fibrous body?
0: I think that usually when you look at it, whether it was a T or or a TTE, you know, with the TTE, sometimes you might not get great windows, or you might get shadowing, especially if there's prosthetic valves in there already, or calcification, or for whatever reason they just have poor windows, COPD or something. But usually, you can tell that you may suspect that you may need to do something bigger. And I think the things you look for is obviously a root abscess that's on that non-coronary side that's extending down into the aortic mitral curtain. Or you can see that it's already completely fistulaized and there's flow going all over the place between the two. If there are previous prosthetic valves, you can see them basically rocking. The aortic curtain is not a huge territory. It's only a couple centimeters um, uh, um, uh, territory between the aortic and mitral valve prosthesis. And you can see them rocking back and forth. You know that when, once you start cutting down in there, that valve. Once you take that valve out, the only reason why it's rocking is because that area is, has completely dehisced and there's no more tissue there. So too, and so I think all those things are informative in terms of um, are you in a facility that um, that should is prepared to do this type of operation and to take care of them afterwards, and if they're not, to po- possibly move them somewhere where they can and ask for your, ask for your surgical colleagues for help in these situations. Um, I think in these situations obviously you don't want to be caught with your pants down in the operating room um, knowing that you have to do more, but it's not the right place to be doing this type of operation. I think that this operation is obviously very um, uh, technically demanding. There's not a lot of room for error. There's some areas that you'll never see again to put another stitch unless you rearrest the heart and if the patient's very sick you may not really have another chance to rearrest the heart and um, you know you know obviously it takes a lot of sewing to put it back together
1: all right, thank you for that answer. And then lastly, before we get into the operative technique actually, I'd like to just deviate for one second from our case scenario and just ask you in what other situations is the commando procedure indicated? So in this case, we present a case of infective endocarditis, And I think you kind of mentioned it already very briefly, but what other kinds of patients um, uh, is it indicated for to to uh, do a commando procedure?
0: I think sometimes you know, I've had a few cases where you know the entire aortic curtain is um, calcified, uh, meaning that um, it's usually you can figure out a way on the aortic side for the aortic valve. But sometimes the the um, anterior annulus, if that whole area is completely calcified, um, you can't safely um, surgically place a valve there. I think there are other options um, that I've done in those situations, which uh, if it's for severe MAC. Um, if appropriate, you can try to do a sapient in Mac, although you know long term data is not available for that. The short term data looks pretty good, um, and those who just have cut out the entire um, intervalvular fibrous body and just reconstructed it, knowing that um, you know you could do it safely.
1: Awesome so now i 'd like to segue into kind of the heart of our discussion, which is the actual operative technique, and i 'd like to leave this part as open ended. As possible, Uh, but I may interrupt you with some more specific questions as we come across the different steps. Uh, But just so I'd like to just ask you to please describe your operative technique in kind of a step-by-step manner, and going into as much anatomical and technical detail as you feel is appropriate. Sure,
0: I think it's the same way every time. You know, when we we start the operations, one is you know where are you going to cannulate? So to my typical cannulation strategy for this is. Um, I'll still do a dual stage um, venous cannula, um, knowing that unless I know I have to do a VSD or some, for some reason, I need bicaval cannulation or I need to snare. So I don't prevent airlocks. Aridic cannulation, I usually almost always just centrally cannulate um, where we normally would. And then I plan kind of how am I going to arrest this heart? Do I, if this patient's extremist and I haven't had a good coronary angiography of some sort to tell me whether there's coronary disease, I think it's critically important to ensure that you know you're going to protect the heart. And I think those are the same tenets as when you're doing acute aortic surgery for dissections or any other acute aortic syndromes. So you're not always going to have the luxury of your heart cath. In those situations, if I know I don't know what the native coronary disease is, and they're in that age and um, risk factors, I typically will rest the heart with um, uh, retrograde cardioplegia to ensure that the left side gets good cardioplegia, and then I'll give osteo right coronary artery um, <clears throat> cardioplegia protection as well to pre- also protect the, the right coronary artery as well. Um, and that's after I give the cardioplegia then I'll open with the transverse arit- uh, oblique aortotomy. Sorry, not transverse aortotomy and actually take a look down there and you know obviously at that point you know if I've infected prosthetic valve or a bu- infected taver valve I'll start explanting there first because once it's explanted then I can see further kind of what is left over afterwards. Can I interrupt you there
1: for just a brief yeah. second and ask you a little bit more detail about the actual oblique aortotomy? Sure. Onto which uh, like coronary sinus are you cutting down on and how far do you extend that?
0: So I usually go right down the middle of the uh, non-coronary sinus, um, knowing that you know when I do the, the commando, I'm gonna if I need to do it, I'll just keep extending down straight down the middle of the aortomitric curtain. That'll drop me right down the middle of A2, and then when I curve for my uh, left atriotomy, uh, then I'll turn it. I'll curve it towards the transverse sinus, so it's much easier for me to, to patch and close uh, um, the atriotomy.
1: Okay. And then how far do you extend that atri- the atriotomy incision? What are your landmarks for that?
0: So usually, I think there's two ways to do it. Some people will just make a nick there. Um, you, if you keep extending it towards the surgeon's side of the table or the patient's right side, sometimes it doesn't help you too much because you basically end up underneath the SVC and you may, it may make it a little bit different, more difficult to close the corner. Um, I typically would curve it towards the transverse signs just because it's right there and it's right in your face and it's easy for you to close. And it, it, you can extend it actually much more and give you more exposure. All right, great. Uh, sorry to interrupt. That's okay. C- continue with your um,
1: step-by-step kind of yeah. technique. And
0: so, um, um, you know, overall at that point, then I'll explain whatever I need to do with this nat- native aortic valve, previous SAVR or a TAVR. And then um, uh, the next thing I'll typically do is inspect, kind of what does the intravalvular fibrous body look like? What is in there? Is there abscess? If there is, and I start uh, cutting basically the entire uh, irritable mitral curtain trigone to trigone, and all the way um, uh, down, and then at that point usually there's some form of a, a mitral valve issue as well. I'll uh, typically take out the whole anterior leaflet along with um, its uh, uh, subvalvular cords and subvalvular apparatus, and then I'll inspect the posterior annulus. Um, if the posterior leaflets are grossly clean, I'll remain those cores, hopefully give me some LV geometry afterwards um, uh, and um, and go from there and start planning my reconstruction.
1: Great. Um, can you give us some tips about actually sizing uh, the valves? Because I know that, that that is something that um, people who are learning this operation kind of struggle with. Yeah. Uh, do you have any tips or tricks?
0: So I think that's a really good question. So, um, you know, It's amazing, once you cut all this out, you know, you have your left atrium, your aorta, and your left ventricle kind of all in one big open space. So you don't have your typical landmarks to size with your um, normal sizers. And surprisingly, you can put almost whatever mitral valve sizer you want in there. The problem with that is that if you size it inappropriately, you'll see that what happens is the anterior sewing cuff of the mitral valve will be up into the aortic anus, which makes you obviously then your aortic valve portion of the procedure more difficult, which means you'll be sewing that much higher, which means I think, it, which will result in a high-risk coronary obstruction. Um, and so I think the best thing to, the that I put is once I, I use more, I use the um, posterior annulus. And once I place in there, I look at where the anterior sizing, I'm sorry, the, uh, the uh, where the anterior sewing cuff would be on the sizer. And I look at that relative to where the plane of the aortic annulus should be and it should be below that plane. If you're butting into that plane, you're gonna, it's the wrong size for that patient. And once I choose the size of that bioprosthetic valve, then I will um, call out for that bioprosthetic valve and start with uh, the uh, annular sutures on the posterior cuff. I'm sorry, the posterior annulus of the uh, mitral valve.
1: Gotcha, that's really good, thanks for that. So um, at this point, you've put in uh, annular sutures along the posterior annulus. Of the mitral valve and then you go ahead and proceed with parachuting down the mitral valve and seating it in place correct
0: correct so i'll put all the um, posterior annular sutures on them uh, on the mitral valve trigone to trigone and then i'll parachute down the mitral uh, bi mitral valve first
1: great and then do you proceed immediately with the patch next or do you go ahead and start putting annular sutures for the aortic valve first before you uh, bring the patch? In. So
0: the next step I do, the, the, you know, there's multiple ways to do the patch, whether it's one patch or two patch. I like to do um, a single patch. And the way I, I describe the patches I basically make something that looks like a surfboard. And uh, I think um, there was a a, a a surgeon that I met one time that um, uh, explained to me um, the way he thinks about it is whether it's a bishop's hat or a surfboard. And um, I think it's a very good description of what the patches always end up looking like. Um, I think the tricky thing about the patch as well is obviously sizing the um, the, the, the width of the patch where it goes to the, um, between the trigones of the anterior sewing cuff. Obviously you have a curvilinear space. So the way I size that is I take a to and I measure that space, fix it uh, between my fingers. And measure the width onto that surfboard and I add another centimeter for whatever reason that always ends up working perfectly well in from a linear measurement to a, a curvilinear um, uh, patch it ends up being perfectly right in terms of from trigon to trigone.
1: Perfect so that's going to be my next question actually is about the width of the patch which you answered perfectly um, and then any particular tricks or tips for the length of the patch or do you just tailor that after you've already sewed it to the micro cuff
0: so, usually i'll use a large bovine pericardial patch and i'll just go from um the uh i'll go from corner to corner on the longitudinal axis and then usually you can easily trim the edges when you fold the patch for the for the single patch technique obviously for the left atrial patch portion make that smaller because um, you typically don't need nearly as much you need much more of the um uh the uh, aortic patch to be longer Gotcha.
1: Now, I've seen videos of this where um, they will continue with interrupted annular sutures along the pericardial patch, along the anterior annulus of the mitral valve uh but i know and from videos that you've shown me of yourself doing this procedure that you actually run that anterior portion of uh, the annulus along yeah. the pericardial patch can you
0: talk about why you do that or so i think personally it's just faster um i mean there are plenty of surgeons that will run all their actual bioprosthetic or any surgical valve um whether it's tricuspid rings or um, aortic valves or um, mitral valves. So, in those situations, obviously, a running suture is just much faster to do, and it's always hemostatic. It's much more hemostatic, you know, than. Um, let me correct that. You both can be hemostatic, but it's much easier to be hemostatic uh, in a timely fashion with a running suture, in my opinion. Gotcha. And so, it also helps, in, in my opinion, to do uh, running sutures for that patch when you go down, because so it helps you with your transitions. Between your trigones to your left atrial suture line up into your aortic into your aortic root to your um, uh, uh, to your uh, to close your uh, uh, aortotomy, uh, gotcha. um, and I think that usually, obviously, the the big leaks you can have in this situation is obviously at the trigones is always the most difficult portion, um, and so um, typically I'll reinforce that area uh, with a figure of eight suture and then run that into a continuous suture into the uh, into both uh, suture lines into the eight. At- atriotomy and also to the aortotomy and usually that has gives me very good results in terms of leaks of the trigones
1: great you anticipated one of my other questions so perfect um, lastly, I want to ask you about the aortic root itself. So how do you decide whether you're going to actually replace the root or if you're just going to do an aortoplasty with reconstructing the non-coronary sinus yeah. with that, with that, the second half of the patch?
0: That's a great question. So I do it just like for any other um, type of surgery. I kind of evaluate, is the root healthy or not? Sometimes, you know, the, uh, the root abscess may only be in that portion of the aortic root um, that's going to be excised for the commando procedure. Um, but if it's not an expend, it's extended to other areas underneath the right the left or for whatever in the Kono septum whatever it is in that situation if I have to redo the root then i just redo the root um, It worked, so you can still do the, the reconstruction with a d- single patch technique you basically just um, uh, transect the the, the uh, surfboard portion of where the uh, uh, the uh, erototomy portion would be for that patch and just make it straight and now you still have a uh, um, leftover um, uh, aortic mitral current where you can sew to a new newly created uh, aortic annulus portion of the non-coronary sinus Great. and parachute down your uh, uh, aortic root.
1: Great so um, thinking about then the aortic annular sutures the other question I wanted to ask you is uh, what is the spacing and the distance that you typically will place your aortic annular sutures um, above where you have
0: placed the, the mitral valve? Yeah, that's, I think that's a great question because um, if you place your sutures too high on that newly formed non-coronary annulus, um, you'll get rocking because obviously that, that area hasn't scarred down and all those different things. So I think an easy way to size that area is when you put the aortic valve sizer in your mind, um, if you're newly doing this, you can easily see what the plane is relative to the rest of the aortic valve annulus. And easily you can mark that patch there and then you know that is the part that you need to put your annular sutures in terms of the level. It always ends up being smaller than you think and if you do it that way what happens is you'll have a nicely seated um, new um, aortic prosthesis that's not rocking.
1: Great. So now I want to transition a little bit into talking about some of the post-operative care and also some of the complications. You mentioned uh, bleeding around the fibrous trigone so I want to ask you about that but Clearly, there are many opportunities for something to go wrong in this operation Mm -hmm. since it is so involved and so complex. So in your experience, what are some of the most common technical complications and how can they be avoided? And if you do encounter them,
0: what can you do to fix them? So I think that um, the most common question I usually get is leaks at the trigones. What do you do? And I've I've explained to people the way I do is I use a transition stitch with a figure eight to really seal the trigone to the anterior sewing cuff to the um, patch. In a figure of eight fashion, and then after I do those transition stitches, I'll probe um, that trigone with a right angle. While it's easy for me to see and fix um, from the ventricular side into the atrial side, and it's very easy for you to see large defects, a small defects, or something that you can't probe through with a right angle. Um, usually, whatever is there will seal after you get protamine, um, and if you or have a deficit there, you can easily fix it because once you've com- complete this operation, if you wait till the very end when the clamp's off it's impossible to fire um, uh, good repair sutures at this time. You're more likely to cause more bleeding. Gotcha. Um, Thinking about
1: the post-operative care, uh, is there anything specific or particular that you wanna tell the ICU team or the critical care team to watch out for in the acute post-operative
0: period? Um, I think that's just good normal post-operative ICU care for um, very sick patients. Um, I think that uh, I will make specific recommendations, especially in the setting of a very low EF patient or if they're coming out on mechanical circulatory support, um, I'll, I'll make some specific recommendations. Um, I think that, obviously, if you're coming out for some reason on VA VA ECMO, whether it's FemFem or VA, to remember not to overflow. You want to keep the valves ejecting. Otherwise, you're going to deal with valve thrombus issues. Um, um, And uh, those are the kind of the typical things, I say.
1: Great. Uh, So I want to also ask you about typical outcomes. Um, There wasn't that much when I was searching through the literature about outcomes on, on this procedure, but in your mind... What is an acceptable mortality rate for this operation? Looking at in hospital or operative mortality,
0: yeah, for a surgeon or for an institution. Well, I think that if you're somewhere between ten to twenty percent, you're doing pretty good. Um, Again, you know, it always depends on your patient because if you're doing a thirty-year-old healthy patient, that all they, you know, you know, overall healthy, but it was just a, a, you know, they were cleaning their teeth and they, you know, they had a bicuspid valve or some some uh, native valve issue and they developed. This issue, they're going to do much better than a 75-year-old that has an infected TAVR. And remember, you know, typically, you know, now, you know, obviously with low-risk TAVR going on, but, um, you know, typically TAVR patients are much older, sicker. They have higher STS risk scores. So overall, they're a much sicker population. Um, and so it just really depends, I think, you know, whether you're kind of more in that lower 10% or you're more towards that, you know, more 30 50%. Mm-hmm. All right. So
1: lastly, um, I want to transition to kind of this, the last segment where I want to ask you about the learning curve that's involved in performing this operation. Uh, so specifically, can you provide us some insight into your personal strategy for tackling these cases during your early career as a more junior attending? And then looking back even further, what was your experience like learning how to perform this operation as a trainee at Columbia? And were there any specific tricks or tips that your mentors used there
0: to teach you this procedure? So, uh, it's, um, to start at the beginning of, of your questions, I think that um, I was very fortunate during my training um, when I was at Columbia. Um, you know, I had um, excellent mentors there. Um, you know, too many to, to, to name, but all everybody um, was an excellent uh, teacher and um, really kind of um, prepared me when I uh, first became an attending um, and uh, allowed me to continue to grow as a surgeon. And um, I think um, that it was critical during my time when I was a um, uh, when I was a senior trainee that um, I was able to perform these operations under guidance um, from uh, Dr. Naka and Dr. Takeyama and Dr. Michael Borger and. they really gave me a lot of experience uh, doing this operation. But that being said, it's very different when you first go out there and become an attending on your own, say for example, in your first year of practice. And I had a few of these when I was out my first year of practice. And um, it's, a, a, it's a very daunting task. And what I would say is that um, uh, if you have the availability and you're in a very nurturing environment, you have good senior partners, people with experience of doing this procedure, have them available, give them a heads up or do the procedure with them. And you'll find that that, um, as you do more and more of these, that um, it will become second nature to you as well. Um, And what I would always say is don't be afraid to ask for help.
1: Great, that's a really great answer. Um, And can I ask you a a little bit more specifically about how many of these cases did you perform, let's say as an attending, before you started to become more uh, confident and
0: a little bit more comfortable? Like was the learning curve before you're comfortable? Um, Fortunately, you know, um, I trained a very high volume center, and I did, uh, I can't remember how many, but this was not a unusual case that I had to do. Um, that being said, it was definitely less common than doing you know, all your regular coronary corner, corner surgery or regular um, valvular uh, surgery. Um, but it was frequent enough that uh, when I first left training that um, uh, I was taught the pitfalls on how to avoid those operations. That being said, even though those patients all did very well, um, I would say probably it was about 10 to 20 of these doing these on my own before I felt comfortable that um, I felt comfortable in as, as a new attending um, tackling these big operations. Um, that being said, over the years it's become easier and easier and has um, given me the ability to show our new junior faculty how to do these operations safely. And um, so I think it's, it's definitely something that uh, a skill, to, a good skill to have, especially in the TAVR age. Awesome.
1: So the one thing that I heard you
0: mention was that to have a senior attending
1: available when you're just maybe hypothetically you're a junior attending you just finished training you mentioned to have somebody more senior available who's comfortable who's Mm -hmm. done a lot of these is there anything else that you learned during that initial phase of your learning how to perform this that you would like to pass along uh, to other junior attendings or even trainees
0: who are learning to perform this I would say, you know, um, go to like AR group courses, um, you know, talk to other surgeons, um, go to the meetings, make new friends, make new uh, colleagues and ask other people what their opinion is. And I think what you'll find is the majority of people, especially, you know, uh, around the world, whether you're in the academic circle or not, uh, I'm sorry, at a, at, a, at a academic institution or not, most people are willing to help each other and tell them everything that, they, that they've gone through and pitfalls and things that they found that work for them. And you, can, you'll, you will adjust your practice. And I remember my, um, my chairman during my training in my time in New York had told me, whatever you're learning now uh, will change within the next 5 to 10 years. And you'll be reinventing yourself every 5 to 10 years because as things change, different procedures, um, things are done better, things are, that weren't working before. And so keep an open mind. You, the learning will not stop after you finish training. That's just the beginning of your journey. Gotcha.
1: That's really great insight. Um, lastly, I wanna kinda ask you more in t- uh, from the perspective of a resident in training. Now that you've gained a lot of experience with this operation, you're sort of quote unquote on the other side of the learning curve, even though you just mentioned that you, know, you never stop learning. Um, what is your approach to teaching
0: trainees or residents or even junior tenings how to perform this? So I think, you know, me, myself is, I, I mean, sorry, let me rephrase that. You know, myself, when I think about these difficult operations, um, I'm starting to, you know, at my time in my career, you know, the sewing portion of it is not, is not the part that I'm interested in. It's really imparting the knowledge to the next generation that's coming through. And the most difficult part about teaching, I think, is um, it's very important for you to judge um, the level of your resident or trainee that you're working with, um, you know, putting them in over the head is not good for their training. Um, so to judge kind of what level are they ready to do the whole operation, are they ready to do parts of the operation, or if they really should be watching the operation, or even if they're able to have the ability to assist you during this operation. So I think that's a critical part is judgment in terms of um what the uh the um the trainee should be doing in this operation, um, and then the next. Next thing I, um, that I've gotten a lot of advice from my, my senior partners is kind of that same aspect, but also um, how to verbalize teaching the person how to get from point A to point Z during this operation. There's a lot of sewing. So you can't just say sew that to that. Um, you need to explain them the landmarks and the pitfalls. and It's not just sewing it back together to impart that same knowledge that I got during my training. To make sure that they understand the pitfalls and where i'm actually thinking of kind of how to put it all back together avoid the complications and if you do have complications, how to get yourself out of it so verbalizing those things are exceedingly important gotcha
1: um given how critical every step of this procedure is in terms of the timing and the technique and the complexity of the anatomy etc uh, do you think that there is a way to teach a trainee how to perform this procedure safely while still prioritizing a good outcome for the patient
0: absolutely so obviously patient outcome is the the most paramount important thing during these operations but i think that at the same token we have fabulous trainees here at usc and i i would say that i you know since my time here um i've gone through with almost every chief resident and, and not just me doing the surgery me actually assisting them doing the entire operation so i think it's absolutely possible with our um uh, more junior fellows, um, typically I'll have them do portions of that operation, and if they're technically able, I'll let them do the whole operation if they're uh, more of a junior resident, then typically what I'll have them do is assisting the operations just so they can see and understand, and either way, no matter where you are um, in the training spectrum there's something to learn, and that's the, the most important lesson I learned from my mentors was that in the beginning when you're training you think you need to sew everything to learn, which is important because you need to know the technical aspects you need, you need the muscle memory of technical Uh, the technical ability. As you get more further and further, even when you're a a new attending, you'll realize you can learn a lot just from watching. And so um, I think it's, again, important to uh, uh, judge who's across the table from you.
1: Awesome. So in summary, Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today and for this insightful discussion. We look forward to sharing these thoughts and all your comments with the rest of the CT surgery community through the TSRA podcast so that other trainees who are interested in learning more about this complicated procedure can hear your insights. So thank you.
0: Thank you again. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Mark.